0: Well, it is with great delight and no small amount of fear and trembling and sobriety that I come to this study of Second Corinthians. I have been taking a, a rather deep dive into this letter in recent weeks. I'm fascinated always by uh, the Apostle Paul and his associates and the, and the power and the clarity and the uh, simplicity by which he presents the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only in his word, but in his life. And that is an underlying theme of the letter to the Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthians. The Christian life, the message of the cross being displayed both in our lifestyle, our character, our actions, and in our word. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul refers to those who, unlike he and his associates, are mere peddlers of the word of God for profit, says the NIV. Peddlers of the word of God. And then in chapter 4, he speaks of those who uh, use deceitful uh, ways, the um, uh, secret and shameful ways, he refers to it in verse 2 of chapter 4. And he speaks of how they use deception and distort or adulterate the word of God. And what he's speaking of there, and as we'll discover as we go through this letter, is that the difference between a peddler and an apostle, a true apostle, is character. In other words, is the message of the cross being fully integrated into one's life? Now, I don't think we have to stretch to realize that this study is going to be very challenging uh, and very important to us for the simple reason that you and I are surrounded today in the West, and especially in America, with peddlers, uh, men and women who use the Word of God to um, uh, advance their own interests, to advance their own agenda who are peddlers without character. In other words, it's very clear that they have something less than Christ-like character, and yet they're preaching Christ. And so what we'll discover is the contrast between the, the authentic Christian life, as is measured by the character and image of Christ within your own life, giving credibility to your word, to your witness, and those who simply use the gospel to promote their own sense of uh, self-importance, greed, and arrogance. So, (laughs) here we get started. Let's uh, turn to this very personal letter from the Apostle Paul. In this letter, he defends and affirms that he and his associates are ministers of a new covenant of the Spirit. That's the essence, that's the heart of this letter. And he's defending the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit as over and against certain false apostles uh, and their ministry of the letter of the law. In other words, we sometimes fail to remember that the gospel, as was preached by Paul, and Christ's other apostles, Peter, James, John, and the others, was so radical, so um, unthinkable, so counterintuitive to the natural mind, that it was inevitable that certain men would take the gospel and bring it back into something that was more comfortable for the natural mind. In other words, they would... Find a way to take the gospel of grace, the gospel of God's accomplished salvation in the finished work of His Son alone on behalf of powerless sinners, and turn it into a gospel where we can profess Christ, we can even acknowledge His work at the cross and His resurrection, but we insist. Upon some vital and necessary contribution on our part in order to make uh, salvation effectual in our life. And that too is the difference between Paul and these men that we'll come to know as the super apostles. So, this is a very personal letter. Paul and his associates are defending the ministry of the new covenant of the Spirit as over and against the ministry of the letter of the law. Two Gospels, with two very different outcomes. Even two very different Christs, and a very different spirit. So you can see why I am approaching this with some very um, strong sobriety of mind, and and, uh, some fear and trembling. But of course the Gospel is good news. There's good news in this for you and I, and the good news is is that we are living a life in our union with Christ that is clearly heavenly, clearly revelatory, because it's not something that we would come up with otherwise. For instance, what, what would we think about someone who rejoiced in suffering? who found that um, their love for Christ was so deep, so profound, so wide, so true, so authentic, that he even desired to participate in Christ's sufferings. So it takes nothing to rejoice when we're in the midst of prosperity and health and good times. What the gospel will teach us in this letter of the second Corinthians is that we are a people who have found rejoicing and comfort and deliverance, even in our sufferings, especially in our sufferings. We are a peculiar people because we worship a crucified Savior, a Savior that is hated by the world. And by the way, the world has never stopped hating Jesus. And those who are in union with him will experience that hate. Those who share in his character will also share in his sufferings. Now, if you leave it there, that's not very good news. The good news is found is that God himself has promised that those who suffer in union with Christ, that he himself will be their comfort. Indeed, the God of all comfort. That you will discover that God is not only with you, but he's intimately involved in your sufferings. And he's intimately involved by being your comfort, your your deliverer, your rescuer, and your hope. So, We can risk. We can risk walking with Jesus. We can risk walking in union with the Crucified One. And we can risk sharing in Him, participating in His sufferings. Because even in our sufferings, we find the joy of knowing that we are walking in union with our beloved Lord. We are sharing in His character. We are growing in His likeness, in His image. And that we can rejoice even in our sufferings is a miracle, it is itself witness to the power of the gospel. Well, let's turn to our text, Second Corinthians today, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which reduces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the trouble we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life itself. Let's pause there. Well, may the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and fully inspired and inerrant word. Amen. So, Paul is rejoicing, rejoicing in the God of all comfort. He's praising, he's given us this doxology. He's writing as an apostle, along with perhaps his uh, closest associate, Timothy. He's writing to what he perceives and understands to be the church of God in Corinth. Those who, through the power of the Spirit, have been brought into union with Christ. And so he calls them saints, or the NIV refers to them as holy people, throughout Achaia. And then we have this constant, unshakable reality. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of Paul's letters begin with this, and it's because we can count on that. It's an unshakable stance that God has taken towards those who are in union with His Son. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. If you ever wonder what God's stance is towards you, it's grace and peace. If you are in Christ, if you are in union with his Son, by grace through faith alone, God's permanent stance towards you is one of grace and peace. From God our Father, which was another huge, radical statement. From God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this doxology begins with this Acknowledgement that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, comforts us in all our troubles. Troubles even to the most severe manner in which we would despair even for life. And there's two things at work here. We are sharing abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, Paul says. And we're also sharing in His comfort. Our comfort abounds through Christ. And it's the comfort that God Himself gives to those who are in His Son and are suffering as a result. So it's the suffering and the comfort that they share, that is both the witness to the gospel and the assurance that they are in Christ. In fact, in verse 7, he says, And our hope for you is firm. Our hope for you is firm. We know that you are in Christ. We know that your faith is genuine. Why? Because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Those sharing in the sufferings of Christ also share in in the comfort, the deliverance, and the hope that God himself brings to those who suffer for being in union with Christ, for displaying his character, his holiness, his love, his devotion to the will of God. So as I said a few minutes ago, we want to be careful to take this study slowly because of its profound implications as to what it means to be genuinely, authentically Christian as opposed to so much of the pop culture in our day that is a reflection and a carrying forward of so much of the pop culture in Paul's day. And one of the things we're discovering already, is that the God of all comfort is that to us because we are in union with the crucified one. We are in union with the one whom the world hated. John chapter 7, Jesus makes it clear that the world hates him because he exposes their deeds as evil. The glory and the holiness and the love and the power of our Lord's character exposed the evil and the darkness within fallen humanity. And that will always, beloved, bring us a reaction as well, as we do the same thing in his name. In fact, let's look at John chapter 15. This is a principle that Jesus shared with his disciples just hours before he was uh, the sufferer. He says in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. So the sufferings that Paul is speaking about here in chapter 1 of Second Corinthians is the sufferings of Christ. It's not personal to you. You may experience it, of course, personally. People may seek to defame your name and curse you personally. But the hatred that you're experiencing as a Christian, when you experience it, It's not if you experience it, when you experience it, on any level, to whatever degree, is the hatred for Christ. Keep in mind, Jesus says, that they hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Now, that's a very important principle. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Listen, if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are in union with Jesus Christ, you are going to experience the same reaction to yourself, to you, that he experienced during his earthly ministry himself, his earthly life. Remember what I told you, Jesus said in verse 20 of John chapter 15. A servant is not greater than his master, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Those sharing in the sufferings of Christ also share in his comfort, deliverance, and hope that comes from God himself. Both are true. Both are true for all Christians. And you cannot enjoy the comfort apart from the suffering. You cannot get to the resurrection except through the cross. Everything in you, everything in you that is not of Christ must be put to death. God will see to that. And there will be external reactions as well. You now belong to Christ. You no longer belong to the world. And you must expect that the world's going to react to you. But you have this glorious promise here today, that God himself is your comfort. God himself is intimately involved in your suffering for his son. And God himself will be your comfort. All comfort comes from him. He is your hope. He is your deliverer. He is your rescuer. Godly lives will attract worldly hatred. Let's look at 2 Timothy 3. There's another principle here that Paul lays out to his young protégé. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warns in this text that there's going to come a day when the church is going to look so much like the world, behave so much like the world, share so much in the character of the world that it'll bring upon the world itself Terrible times, perilous times, awful times, horrible times, primarily due to the fact of the lack, and hear me now, the lack of the image of Christ in the church. There's a lot of uh, argument, there's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy on what is the purpose of the church. Some would say that it's the purpose of the church to do what they have to do to attract unbelievers into the church. Using all kinds of worldly schemes and techniques, marketing. Others who say no, no, no—the the worship the purpose of the church is to worship. To be holy. Stand apart. Well, that's certainly more true than the seeker-sensitive approach. It still falls a little short. I would submit to you today that in 2 Corinthians, we are going to learn that the purpose of the church is to image Christ into the world. Not just in word, which is very popular to do these days. There is no shortage of men running around, men and women running around, giving us the word of Christ. But we know nothing of their character. Oftentimes, by the time we do learn of their character, it's kind of late Terrible things have happened to other people. There's been abuse. There's been ex- exploitation, greed, sexual immorality. Something that brings out the underlying character of these people who purport to be preachers of the word of God and are not. And this is part of the terrible times in which we live. Let's look at this. Second Timothy chapter three. There will be terrible times in the last days, says Paul. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But they'll also have this characteristic. They'll have a form of godliness, but denying its power. The uh, New English translation reads, I think a little more vividly, they will maintain the appearance of religion while repudiating its power. So what is the alternative? What is the alternative of walking in union with Christ experiencing not only the power of his resurrection, but participating in his sufferings. What I want to caution you against today and warn you against is that if you are in Christ, you are going to know the power of his resurrection and you will participate in his sufferings, both internally and externally. What I've offered you also is the comfort of knowing that God himself promises to be your comfort. Your hope, your deliverer. But the danger exists that as you experience suffering for your walk with Christ, and hopefully for your character in Christ, you will be tempted to compromise the gospel. You'll be tempted, as were the Corinthians to no longer align yourself with the message of the apostles in the New Testament, but to find certain preachers and teachers who will offer you a gospel that does not bring about suffering. And why doesn't it? Because it belongs to the world. Later we'll discover in chapter 11 of Second Corinthians that Paul speaks of those who uh, preach a, another Jesus, another Jesus. Spirit, another gospel, and they do this because they so that they can avoid the persecution of the cross. So don't go there. The warning here today is that we are going to suffer as we share in the character of Christ, because the world has never stopped hating Christ. But we can rejoice in the fact that God has promised to be our comfort and that we are participating in the very character and life of Christ, as well as his death, that we are being conformed into his image to the degree that the world would react to us. But the danger is, let me say it again, the danger is, is as we begin to experience isolation or rejection or direct persecution that we'll be tempted to withdraw. We might be seduced by any number of modern super-apostles who will call us into a worship of another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, that is something that the world actually applauds, the world at least accepts, the world can live with. And thus ease the persecution. But here's the great danger. Going down that road will lead you only to destruction. Back to Second Timothy here for a moment. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. It's a powerless religion that we're going to be facing in the last days. Now, it will call itself Christianity. It will use Christian symbols. It will use Christian terminologies. It'll have all the worldly success characteristics, big, wealthy, charismatic, everything that the world assigns to value. Assigns value to, I should say. Except that it won't have the power of the Spirit, it will be a powerless form of religion. And Paul adds this, have nothing to do with such people. And that's part of my message to you today. Have nothing to do with such people. Let me remind you again, this letter of 2 Corinthians, and and I'm inviting you into this deep dive study with me, is going to lead us into a new depth by the mercies of God new depth of awareness of our union with Christ, and the glories of that union, the wonders of that union, the transformative power of that union. And it will also bring us into a new understanding of the world's hatred for our risen Lord, and what he experienced, and what his apostles experienced. And what the saints who have been in union with him, faithful saints throughout the ages, have experienced as well. And the warning I want to leave you with today is this. This is bound to happen. This is going to happen. It's not a bad thing. In fact, Paul says in Philippians 3 that he wants to know Christ. In fact, let's turn there real quick. Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 10, Philippians chapter 3, I want to know Christ. So this is something else we're going to learn. We're going to learn more of our union with Christ. We're going to learn more of our the power of what that means to be in union with Christ. We're going to experience more of what he experienced as in his walk on earth as we image Christ into the world. And we're going to likely have to, and please make note here, redefine what it means to know Christ. The peddlers, the modern peddlers, the modern super apostles, I've given you a definition of what it means to know Christ. Power, prosperity, success, never-ending blessing. And if you're experiencing persecution or you're experiencing your own weaknesses and frailties, then clearly you just don't have enough faith. Many of us have heard that, that notion. Many of us, sadly, have bought into that notion of what it means to know Christ. Well, that's not what Paul's definition is. Let's look at his. He says, yes, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, and that's where the world will stop, right there. We want to know power. We want to know the power of his resurrection and, however, he goes on to say, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul's saying that to know Christ is to know not only the power of his resurrection, but to participate in his sufferings. It's something he wants. He wants to know Christ in this way. I dare say That this is a message that is all but lost in modern Christianity. Do we really want a suffering Christ? Do we really hold to a message of Christ and him crucified? Do we rejoice in this? This is what makes us a peculiar people, as I said earlier. The world looks at us and says, What's wrong with you? Clearly, something's not right with you. (laughs) You're worshiping a, a rejected, hated, crucified Savior. But there's something very right about us, it is the only sane way to live. He wants to participate in his suffering, becoming like him. Another translation would be being conformed to his death. So when Paul says back in 2 Timothy 3, have nothing to do with such people, he's saying don't have anything to do with people who are going to offer you an alternative way to avoid persecution and suffering by adopting a form of the gospel by operating under a, a, a spirit and even an alternative view of Jesus that while it may allow you to avoid persecution and suffering, will only end in destruction. And that's my last point here. Remember Jesus' wilderness temptation, a big part of it, was satan offering jesus a path as a messiah that would avoid suffering and he's never ceased to do that to the church let me offer you a path that doesn't have to include all this nasty suffering paul says in second corinthians chapter 11 for example speaking Of these false apostles, what he calls deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, he says, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Masquerading as an angel of light, it says, it's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Listen, the great danger to you today and your faith and your growth in Christ is not rank paganism. It's not rank secularism. It's a false Christianity that threatens you the most. The greatest threat to you today, to your spiritual health and your growth in Christ, is this kind of thing that Paul's speaking of here. But listen to what he says at the very end. Their end, speaking of these false apostles, their end will be what their actions deserve. This is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew seven, isn't it? Let's turn there real quick. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who, uh, only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, did we not look and talk and sound just like we are actually Christians? In the verse twenty-three, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. So let me just summarize real quickly now. We're beginning this study in Second Corinthians as a study of contrasts, contrasts between authentic New Covenant ministry, New Covenant of the Spirit, and the alternative. The New Covenant ministry of the Spirit is about imaging Christ into the world. And by imaging Christ in the world, not only will we bring the... uh, the, 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 aroma, if you will, of the knowledge of Christ into the world will also attract hatred, suffering, and persecution. And there will be a temptation when that persecution begins, and it's coming. It'll it'll be much sooner than you expect and probably much more severe than you uh, imagined. And there will be a temptation to want to withdraw and maybe go back into some form of the gospel And the world is filled with hucksters, filled with super apostles, filled with peddlers who are going to be standing at the door anxiously awaiting to offer you a form of the gospel, a view of Jesus, and even a different spirit that will allow you to maintain your profession of Christ and avoid persecution. The problem is with that, and what I'm warning you against today, is that their end will be utter destruction and that eternal. So stand firm. Stand firm. We read that this morning, didn't we? And our hope for you is firm, Paul says in verse 7 of our text. Our hope for you is firm. He's saying to the Corinthians, I believe in you. I know that your faith is genuine. And I know that because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Stand firm. Stand firm in Christ. Be working out your salvation by working out his image in your character, by putting to death everything in you that's not of him. So that you individually and corporately in your fellowship will begin to image Christ more accurately, more clearly into the world. But do expect that there will be a reaction by the world. And then do expect that there will be a temptation, there will be even a seduction, to move away from the gospel of the new covenant of the Spirit, that which produces the image of Christ in you and into the world, to another gospel, another view of Jesus, energized by another spirit that will allow you to avoid persecution, but in the end leads to eternal destruction stand firm stand strong and rejoice that you are in union with christ amen